Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Rosalind McFarland, is a writer and editor of a range of educational publications, including a series of best-selling HSC English textbooks. She's had several short stories published and her novella, The Privacy of Art, which is set in the Blue Mountains, where she's lived for over 30 years, won a bronze medal in the Global eBook Awards. All the Lives We've Lived is her recently released first novel, and we'll be talking through that today. Rosalind, welcome. Thanks, Maggie, and thanks for um, inviting me onto your program. Oh, it's a joy to have you. So be before we begin chatting, can I ask you please just to read us a little from All the Lives We've Lived? Okay, well, I'm... I'm choosing a, um, a piece from the beginning, near to the beginning, um, where the main character is introduced. Her name is Kate, and this is a, a woman um, of a certain age. She's recently retired, and she goes back to her um, childhood home. She's sold the property of her parents. It's in the suburbs of Sydney, and... Um, she she's <clears throat> she has this kind of um, she returns to the family home. It's near Saltpan Creek, which is a tributary of the Georges River, and she's recalling the first time in the late fifties when she was around six years old, when um, she, her detective father, and her stay-at-home mother uh, first moved there. So I'll begin around here. Kate Kate. And there she was, standing on the bare board of the open veranda, squinting into the shimmering ugliness of their scorched backyard, full of rock and rubble, where her father, stripped to the waist, all muscle and power, was trying to level around her broken shells, some grey and dirty, some porcelain white and gleaming. Kate remembers him dripping with sweat, stopping for a moment and living his sledgehammer. He looks up and seeing his daughter gives her a wave and a smile. She can't understand why he's so happy. The only thing that would make her smile right now would be if she and her mum and dad were back in their cosy one-bedroom flat in King's Cross, all dark wood and shadows. There was no glare there, ever. And on Sundays, each of her parents would take one of her hands and the three of them would walk together down the big hill past the stadium to Rushcutters Bay Park where they'd eat sandwiches on the wooden bench beneath the shade of the giant Moreton Bay fig and watch the sailing boats that were moored at the jetty. Kate loved listening for the clink, clink, clink that the boats made when their masts hit against metal. Afterwards... All three of them would have ice cream and stroll along the pathway that curved around the water's edge to look at all the pretty white sails skating across the sparkling blue rim of the harbour. But there wouldn't be any water here. Kate blinked and stared once more at the flinty backyard of her new home, her new view of the world. She told herself she mustn't cry, but then felt the touch of her father's hand on her shoulder so what do you think, he asked. I don't like it here. You will, said her father. Give it time, you'll see. But there aren't any trees. And where's the water? Is that all you're worried about? Her father sounded relieved. 
If you go and help your mother unpack like a good girl while I finish as much as I can out here today, we'll all go for a little walk when I'm done and I'll show you the river. How'd you like that? There's a river near here. She could scarcely believe it. You bet there is, came his reply. They call it a creek, but it's as wide and as long as a river. Kate now smiled. All things can be happy here in the house made from fibro and love. And she also knew that until her final breath, this small block of suburban history would live within her. The polished linoleum and the neat kitchenette and the sing-alongs round the pianola and the smell of Sunday lamb roasts and the terrible daylight quiet when her father was asleep after being on night duty and the perfume-fumed marriage of California poppy hair oil and Yardley's April Violet's eau de toilette and their black Bakelite telephone's unlisted number and the winter morning huddle with her baby brother in front of the kerosene heater and her mother, forever chain-smoking, sitting at the window of her darkened bedroom watching the street that was waiting for her husband to come home. That's it. Uh, I love that. That I love that, and the whole book is like that in that it is um, intensely sensual. There is so much um, of place, of smell, of scent, um, and I feel like overall, and and this is I guess the nature of the story. Um, there's a real richness of nostalgia that runs through Kate's experience. It's almost mm. as if she's mining that nostalgia. If you're as if you're yeah. mining the nostalgia for meaning. Yes, well, yes. I mean, <clears throat> this is where some people say, "Oh, it's very autobiographical." I did grow up in this area. I think that's obvious. It's. Um, um, I have a a great attachment to the area, like I have a great attachment to the Blue Mountains. Um, I feel I know it. I feel I'm a part of it. Um, um, but the Blue Mountains is, is, is where I've spent more of my life um, than I ever did at Saltham Creek. But I think one's childhood is very intense. And I think that when both my parents died, um, there was a sense of, of course, of loss and of grief. But having to sell the family home, the childhood home, going through all of that, I was just swamped, I think, by childhood memories. I'd left the place years ago and, I mean, even in my teens I couldn't wait to get out of the place. I thought it was stultifying and so terribly boring. Um, but coming back to it um, and knowing that this was the end, um, you, you, you have another, there is a sense of nostalgia, there is a sense of, um, I was just flooded with memories and most of those memories um, were rich and were terribly um, strong and powerful and, and I, just, I just felt um, quite energised by it and I'd, I was doing um, an MA at UTS in creative writing at the time and I was actually writing The Privacy of Art and I, I was thought about that one of these days I would write something about about Salt Pan Creek. 
Um, and those memories kept returning to me um, a lot and particularly um, ones about um, I had a strong memory of that time with my father smashing what turned out to be what I learned later as a child was a midden, mm-hmm. an Aboriginal midden. And, and that was very, very powerful and particularly with what was happening at the time um, um, with you know, like there was a lot about hidden history and, and so on. And I also had a memory of, that my mother once talked about, my father, um, that there had been a camp, that that's how they referred to it, um, long before they had gone there, but it was in their living memory that there had been a camp in, in Salt Pan, Pan Creek. Um, and I wondered about that too and why I never asked any questions and I don't think we do sometimes as children. We, even though I, 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 you know, used to ask lots of questions about lots of things, I certainly it just was a. I just didn't bother. It was just one of those things you sort of took for granted, and you just didn't. I wasn't. Um, it's not that I wasn't interested, but it just wasn't part of my little world, I suppose. Um, and then in the nineties, another memory I had again was when with Marbo. And my parents, I went to visit my parents and they were both extremely agitated. They had been watching, um, uh, listening to shock jocks on the radio and they were convinced that their little suburban block, um, the, the fibro house had been brick veneered at, this, at that stage, um, but they were sure that they were going to lose it. Um, that's what the shock jocks were telling them about. And I had memory as well. And the two together, and I thought, I've, I've got to find out about this. Like, why were they so agitated and, and what it all was? And so, yeah, there is there is a sense of nostalgia. The, the place is totally changed. Um, uh, I mean, you if you return to Salt Pan Creek itself now, which I have done only recently, recently um, for the cover of the book, etc., it... it it just looks like a polluted swamp, um, you know. You know, it's it's not what it used to be um, in my free range. What I call my free range childhood, where all the kids used to play down there. It was it was a wonderful place. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Mm. Yes, I suppose it's. I don't know whether that answers your question or. Yes, or it does. Not, uh, anyway. and, and you've brought up that um, that particular moment of the destruction of the proof of Aboriginal occupation, um, which I guess in, in many ways is um, the second story that's running parallel to Kate's story and, and in fact, bisects Kate's story in some ways. Um, it's, it's really interesting how, you know, that, and I guess this is what you do as an author, um, that particular act of destruction kind of mirrors the nation's destruction. It, it becomes almost um, a, a synecdoche, right? A, a, the individual act being representative of a much bigger act. Well, when I started writing, I, I, I sort of thought, well, what am I going to do with this character, Kate, that's loosely based on me? <clears throat> like, I, um, uh, yes, I have a son, but I've never been estranged from him or anything like that. Um, I've never been divorced. Um, <laughs> you know, all of that is completely imaginary. But one of the things was that I, I, I started thinking, given my parents' 
um, ethical standpoint or moral sensibility or whatever you like to call it, but but they were creatures of their time. And um, I, I sort of thought about what would they have done had I had an Indigenous boyfriend at the time. And I did go to school with um there was a, an Indigenous boy at school and he was a friend, but he was just, at, again, um, he he just was one of us. He, we didn't kind of, I, we didn't ask about him. Like he was the only um, Aboriginal boy in the entire school and nobody really asked him about where he came from or anything. It was just accepted. Um but I wondered, and I, and I did know later that he married someone from the school who who was of European descent, and I just wondered what how my parents might have reacted because they were strangely, had I gone out with someone or you know dated in my teens, and um, because they were strangely broad-minded in many many ways, but I wondered about. Um, um, just that. that. That's how Gary was created. It was like through a hypothetical. Mm. And and mm. then I, I saw their relationship, Gary and Kate's relationship, as something that's perhaps idealised but um, ultimately, you know, it's something that I think um, uh, embodies statements. I, I think it's for me... The novel it has got a political um, takes a political stance. I feel, um, and you know, basically, it's about uh, that we need to accept and celebrate an indigenous culture, um, uh, the past. We need to s stop lying about the past. Um, we need to embrace the truth of that and stand together with our Indigenous brothers and sisters to move forward as a nation. And so their relationship in a way is is, is a kind of a, uh, a conceit or a metaphor to, to, to represent that, that kind of idealised union in a sense, sense. Mm. Um, something that I hope I shall see in my lifetime. Um, that we can stand together and that the Uluru Statement, that wonderfully generous lyrical document, will be accepted by um, yeah, you know, a government. A government. I, I really believe that um, uh, it will help with healing um, for both Europeans <laughs> as well as um, indeed with the Indigenous uh, indigenous brothers and sisters who are really showing their leadership and their generosity just in that document alone and I'm, I'm devastated that nothing has been done really about that. Mm. Um, and, and also anyway. for, the good of, for the good of the earth, because it, it seems to me that that's key to, um, to us moving forward. The good of what, sorry? The good of what, sorry? The earth. The state, the state. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Precisely. Um, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, that midden that was actually 
um, in the backyard, and, and mind you, it was only a small midden because it was a very small backyard, let me tell you. Um, I had come to know, it was, it, it, I mean, the whole of the Sydney basin was full of real. And right, I know um, all the research that I did on, on the area from Botany Bay right through to, to um, uh, the, well, the whole part of the Georges River, etc. That you know, all along that river, um, like the Hawkesbury, um, had middens everywhere. Um, you know, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised even where I'm, I live now in the Blue Mountains. There was no doubt there were middens everywhere as well. I mean, these were places. But anyway, there. That's we're living in these times today, but. You, we can't keep going on denying um, that what happened to, um, well, the truth of, of Australia's um, becoming a nation, in inverted commas. Yes, yes, I, I, I agree. And I think you, you um, do a beautiful job of representing that in the book as well. Um, so you, these are, I guess, uh, this almost answers my next question, which is, um, you know, you were the author of very successful HSC textbooks, and presumably there were, there's always a need for more of that. Um, but what, what was the impetus for you to begin writing fiction? Is it because you needed to tell these complex stories um, that, you know, that were sort of uh, inside of you? Well, I've always always loved. I mean, I'm a, a huge reader, um, and I've always loved writing. As a little girl, I did blah blah blah. I became an English teacher. Um, I loved literature. Um, I, I did a double major in English, and I loved teaching uh, literature to uh, kids. Um, I spent the last ten years of my teaching life. Um, in, a, on a, in a senior campus, so I was only teaching years 11 and 12, but prior to that I had, had written co um, three other um, English educators, uh, a textbook um, for HSC, which was kind of, um, and it came out every year for English, and I was the editor for the poetry section. Um, and... Uh, um, and so I do like poetry a lot. And I also went at the senior campus with the new syllabus that came in. They had, um, I, you probably do know about the extension two course where students um, not only have to read extremely widely and in depth um, and they have to produce um, some kind of creative work, work be it, be it a suite of poems or stories, short stories or um, radio plays, plays the theatre, all sorts of sorts of things, multimedia things and so on. And I taught that and just loved that course. I decided that um, I was going to do, I, that was what I was going to do um, as soon as I was starting. And I, I acknowledge the fact that, Probably a lot of journalists and probably a lot of English English teach, teachers just all feel that they have a novel in them. And I just felt well, um, the novella that I wrote 
was was part of the thesis um, I did in the masters, and was the 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 the, the thesis you had to hand to hand in, and that was my final um, work, and I, I again in, and it was during that period period when I really started to write this um, this book and and and. Yes, and I'm, and I'm going to continue writing. Writing. I'm pre- preparing another novel now, like to write. I'm doing a lot of work on it now. You get that idea, and 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 um, and, and you just just I don't know, no, no. I find it find it so stimulating. Um, um, yes, I can't answer that question. I'm wondering, um, but yes, I. That's how I came to start writing. I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and the narrative structure um, of all the lives we've lived is, is pretty unique. Um, did you write the individual stories separately, or was the whole book in mind? And did you do the pieces kind of to to fill in that structure? Maggie, it took me five years to write the book before I showed it to anybody, um, and there was. Um, a version, the the first completed version. Um, uh, one thing I learned on, during the MA was, you know, when you finish something, uh, you put it in a drawer, let it marinate, and come back to it a few months later. And so I printed it off, and I put it in a drawer, and uh, I went overseas. I was going overseas. I came. I took it out. I read this first version of um, All the Lives We've Lived and I thought, oh, my God, it's a stinker. Um, I mean, I, I, I was reading bits and I thought, oh, that's lovely. Oh, did I write that? Oh, I'm very pleased with that. Then I get to another section and I went, oh. It was, it was I, I can't describe it. I, I have destroyed it, though I do have a... Um, a copy somewhere, I'm sure. I haven't just dis- dis- destroyed all copies, but I used it, and, it, and I started to really think that it was um, beyond me. And one of the reasons why I thought it was such a stinker was that it didn't seem it didn't have a spine. That I was trying to write so much, put so so much, and write. I had this cast of thousands. Uh, it was like an epic novel. But it just, you know, it just wasn't working, and uh, uh, I don't know what to do. And I, I probably spent six months trying to think about it and analysing. And then just one morning, I can remember. Well, one morning it was like three or four o'clock in the morning. I woke up, and it just came to me. And I, I went up to the computer and I, I, I looked at looked at the in my study and I suddenly realized that you know it was missing a spine and that spine somehow that what was the connector what was the thing I had to I had to, had to cut and I had to cull I knew that but what and I had done a job on that but I still didn't it wasn't holding together and then I realized that yes there was Kate she held it together the character um, and I had to build her a little bit more and I had to uh, kind of combine other characters in her life in the book, which I did do. Um, but the one thing I saw was the river 
and that was the other connector. And I thought, yes, this is the river is connecting all these stories. The river sees everything. The river is the 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 it, it represents rivers all represent for me the ebb and flow of life. Uh, they run past us and 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 you know we that quote that I put in, put in the beginning. You know we we step take a step one day into a river, but it's a different river the next day because it's different waters are flowing down there. And I, and I thought about that and I thought the river sees everything. And then I thought that's, I'm going to build that. That's going to be the other connector. And whatever doesn't connect is going to be edited out and um, so on. And that's how I got it. I did a massive rewrite. And I, I just, it was really fulfilling and I was just, even though it took probably six months to get to the point of knowing what to do, it then didn't take very long in me being able to do that. Um, and, and But there were new stories that had to be written. Um, uh, Alethea was born um, out of that Um she was it was important to then have a the river to have a voice in a sense um and then i went through all the stories and made sure that the river somehow appeared um and and so on that's that's how it came about really and and i was thrilled by it i was actually on a real high <laughs> when that happened because i i honestly thought that i'd never be able to achieve any sort of I just didn't know how to bring it together, but it was kind of a bolt from the blue and whatever. However that came about, I'm just eternally grateful because I'm, I am pleased with it. And I do like the discontinuous narrative structure because I think it also fits in with life really um, and with the theme about truth and deception and lies and the, the truths we tell ourselves and so on. Um, there are always these gaps, you know, like I, I know I'm challenging discontinuous narratives do challenge the reader a little bit because sometimes I know some people have said to me, oh, I got a little bit confused at first but then it all came together, a few people were saying, particularly if they've not read sort of stories like this or, or books that do this. And and they they say and then it was was fine I I I just couldn't put it down and I, I think oh good that was what I was hoping would happen um, because I think there are in life um, we we sometimes see things from our own personal point of view we're told things that we don't know fully there are silences there are gaps there are um, you know particularly those um, stories that I uh, that concern Kate's childhood, where uh, she's looking at things that happen, particularly her parents' relationship, and I wanted to convey what it is sometimes the way you perceive the adult world as a child, and I had to sort of go back to how I perceived my parents then, and I know that the way I perceived my parents shifted as I. It was constantly shifting and we, we do that all the time to people we know, um, our friends and so on. And sometimes I sort of think, you know, I, I suddenly think, you know, I, 
I learn something, something about a friend and I think, oh, oh, I didn't know them at all. Fancy they did that. I can't believe it. Oh, you know, and I think that wonderment or, or, or shock or, or is quite, isn't a bad thing. We, we're learning all the time and, and I think some ways, um, you know, my father, who was a homicide detective, always talked about that he saw his role of, of finding the truth and the truth he used to think only served those who told it. Remember, this is from a crime, you know, seeking out the truth of a murder, for example, like who and what actually happened. And he, he would be obsessed by it and the whole family was obsessed by him finding out who did this um, vile crime and why and understanding why and um, and uncovering the truth. And he was always, you know, he, he talked about how people would often, you know, there was always people that came forward and said they did a crime and, <laughs> and it always baffled him why people, you know, and he'd, knew, he'd know that they were lying, that they were just wasting good police time, like he'd get, be outraged by it. But, yeah, so the truth, the truth and the lies that we tell um, and, yeah, the digging for truth and and. I, I think that's what, you know, a life well lived is when you the truth. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I'm, I've got no, verbal diarrhea. <laughs> not at all. And I, you know, I think the the whole narrative structure also reflects the fact that there are, in fact, many lives, many aspects to ourselves, but also many aspects to time and space that make whoever we are at this point in time you know that, that create who we are at this point in time and I think you reflect that very well um, you know there are layers in the earth there are different levels of occupation there are um, different histories happening simultaneously and again I think the, the structure of the of the novel mirrors that quite beautifully so uh, I think it works <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you found the key <laughs> Um, and I and I love Alethea, <laughs> and I do think Alethea does provide an important and, and kind of slightly mysterious and timeless thread through what is otherwise, um, you know, very rooted in different times and different places. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I actually, I, I had her beginning, and I gave the, the finished book to two very, very good friends. Um, who I trusted and one of whom worked on the um, agency textbook. She she was the editor for the novel. And um, I gave them the book and I said, right, you know, please, any comments, what I can do. And both of them came back and said, um, you need to have, have more of um, Alicia and Alethea, and and she's wonderful. At least have her again uh, towards the end and, and at the end of the book. Give that that. So um, I did. I turned around and around and I went, well, yes, and that would make it complete. And so um, I have them to thank, my first two readers to thank. Um, yes. So wonderful. I, well, well, we are yeah. out of time. 
But um, before we finish, uh, it always goes so fast, um, and I think we could probably go on for quite a while. Um, but nevertheless, uh, before we finish, can you just um, let listeners know who will no doubt be wanting to find out more where the best place to go is to find out more about you and your work, Ralph? Well, I have a Facebook writer's page um, and um, I'm, I'm not all over the internet, unfortunately, um, but, um, yeah, I have a Facebook author's page. Um, they can find out through that, I guess. I don't know whether that's adequate. Um, Gin and Dara Press is obviously is the, the publisher. Um, I, I sh I'm intending to have more of an online presence but as yet, I haven't, and I have to say, partly because um, I, I, I want to be writing, and I, I don't know whether you find this, Maggie, uh, there's so much now that writers have to promote themselves and, and, and do so much more than just write, and I find it, because I've come to it a little bit later in, in life, I, I'm, I just ha don't. I have to make choices and I really want to write this other novel and I'm desperate to start it. And, um, you know, if I go off and, and start on doing more, having a larger online presence, I'm not writing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I, I think it's a challenge for everyone. Um, and, uh, of course, re reading uh, on the socials, there's so much information now coming out. You just go from one article to another and uh, find that hours have gone by. So I, I hear you. Um, but I will put in the show notes, um, I will put a link to your Facebook author page just to make it easy for people to find you. Um, that and that's it. Excellent. So thank you so much for joining me today and, uh, and oh. to you listeners. Bye for now. Maggie, it's it's to you, I think, too. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Now. bye.